there we go. So the worst thing that happened to me as a teenager was Ikea. Okay, maybe not the worst, but one of the worst. So I grew up in a village called Dridlington. Some of you here know it very well. And uh, it was in the, the late 90s that they built an Ikea right next door uh, to my village. And it made our village a bit of a nightmare, really, because every exit of our village was blocked every weekend for about a year. It was really crazy. The traffic was sort of backed up into our village. And the traffic jams, but it wasn't really worth leaving the village. So you just sort of had to stay there and stew. You know, there's nothing really much to do. The worst thing that happened to me as an adult was Ikea. Because as an adult, you somehow expected to know how to put flat-pack furniture together. I, I found it... Let's just leave that. Um, <laughs> um, you find as an adult male... You sort of expected to know how to put up flat pack furniture. It's like when you turn 18 uh, and suddenly you're presented with some sort of wardrobe, like a snook, I don't even know if that's a real thing, a snook wardrobe or a snook one, who knows. Um, you're expected to just know how to put it together. But one of the other things you're expected not to do as an adult male is to read the instructions. Because that's sort of seen as, well, you get fewer points, really, if you read the instructions before you put it together. So you're expected to know how to put it together without the instructions. It's like a rite of passage. Other men look down on you for reading the instructions. To be fair, when in the late 90s, the instructions for IKEA made it no easier anyway, because uh, they often had something wrong anyway. But uh, instructions are important, though, aren't they? They show us how to do things. Even if they're confusing, they're there to help us. And the Bible is no different. But listen to some of these instructions from the Bible. Do not wear clothes of wool or and linen woven together. Do not cut yourselves or shave the front of your heads for the dead. When you reap the harvest of your land, do not reap to the very edges of your field or gather the gleanings of your harvest. They can be really confusing instructions, can't they? What are we to make of them? And even more than that, if you've been with us the past few weeks in Romans, you see that Paul's instructions sound very different, don't they? He's been saying things like, weep with those who weep. Serve one another. Don't think of yourself too highly. I mean, those don't even sound like they're from the same book, really, do they, as the other ones? He's not even mentioned the Ten Commandments yet. I mean, if you were going to write to Christians to tell them how to live, you'd think that that might be quite up your, your list, wouldn't you, to, to talk about the Ten Commandments? But he hasn't even included them yet. So do we still need to keep them? If so, how? And why would we keep them? Why do we keep the rules when Paul has been saying all along that we're saved by faith? Not by trying to be good, but by the fact that Jesus has died for us. Well, Paul is going to answer those two questions. What do we do with those laws? And then why do we keep them? Why do we actually live in the way that we do? So firstly, our first point this morning... Love one another to fulfill the law. Let me read to you verses 8 uh, to 10 again. Owe no one anything except to love each other. For the one who loves has fulfilled the law. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet. And any other commandment are summed up in this word. You shall love your neighbour as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbour, therefore love is the fulfilling of the law. Paul moves on from the idea we saw last week of owing things to those in authority 
onto owing one another things. That's his sort of movement in thought. Now, I don't think verse 8 really is talking about financial matters, uh, when it says not to owe anyone anything. But I do know some Christians who've really agonised over this. Uh, I remember a friend of mine who was really unsure about getting a student loan because it would put them in debt. I know another friend who built their house from scratch so that they wouldn't have to get a mortgage and put themselves in debt. But interestingly, Jesus seems to envisage a system where people would borrow and lend. So Christians are told to, to lend to people freely. If anything it teaches about finance is that we pay our debts back in a timely fashion. But the main point is this second part, that ongoing debt of love. Owe nothing but to love one another. And this is a debt that is never fully paid. Sometimes my student loan feels like that. Um, but this is a debt that continues day to day. He speaks of it as a debt because we owe it to those. We owe it uh, to other Christians. We owe them love, just like we owe the authorities honour and respect. And it's continuing because John Stott, uh, he writes this, we can never stop loving someone and say I have loved enough. We can never stop loving someone and say I have loved enough. And this is a bit of a nightmare if you're a fan of to-do lists. I know we've got some fans here this morning of to-do lists, not naming any names. But uh, this is one that never gets ticked off. That's what it's saying. Every day it's on your list. It's the one that's always there. Love one another. It never goes away. It's continuing. Now, for some of you, that might sound depressing. So thinking of love as a debt, and worse, a debt that you can never pay off. But paying this debt, loving others, does something. It fulfills the law. That's what Paul says. It fulfills the law. Now, the law he's talking about here is the law of Moses, the one we find in the Old Testament, the Ten Commandments and, and those sorts of commandments. He quotes four of them uh, from the second half of the Ten Commandments in verse 9. And he says they're summed up this way, summed up in one word, one phrase. Love your neighbour as yourself. Now, that sounds quite a, a strange thing in a way, thinking of all those commandments summed up as just love your neighbour as yourself. But then Jesus said much the same thing. We looked at only a couple of months ago, didn't we, on the Sermon on the Mount, when in Matthew 7, you see it on the back of your notice sheets, so whatever you wish others would do to you, do also to them, for this is the law and the prophets. And similarly in Matthew 22, he says, and uh, uh, answering the question, what is the greatest commandment? He says, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbour as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. Paul and Jesus are saying this. In terms of other people, this is it. Love. Love one another. And that's what we've been seeing through the whole of this section, isn't it? In Romans. But here we have it spelled out clearly. Love fulfills the law. See, in a way, that the Old Testament law was about debt, but in a bit of a different way. That's why in Matthew's Gospel, the Lord's Prayer, instead of saying, forgive us our sins or trespasses, it says, forgive us our debts, as though we're in debt. The Old Testament law put us in debt to God because we break it. Break the law, face the fine, face the debt. 
But Jesus came and paid our debt, the ultimate debt, our very lives. He died to pay the price that we all deserve to pay. Jesus fulfilled the law's demands. He lived it perfectly. And then he died, not for his own debt, because he didn't have any. Instead, his death paid for our debt. And that means that Jesus fulfilled the law. And that means that now the law has changed. It's changed from being an instrument of death to being a guide to life. Instead of getting us into debt with God, it now shows us how to pay that debt to one another. The role of the law has fundamentally changed. And the way it applies has fundamentally changed too. So think about it. That's why we can eat bacon, which I'm very thankful for every time I have bacon. That's why Saturday is no longer the Sabbath. That's why we no longer offer sacrifices or keep Old Testament festivals. If the law had not changed, then we would still be keeping those things, wouldn't we? We would still be doing all those things. But does that mean then that we can just do what we like? Are we now free to just do whatever we want? Well, Paul's already been there in Romans 6, so I sort of point you back there. But Paul's answer was, by no means. Love does not abolish the law, it fulfills the law. It takes it from something that's a tick list, if you like, to something that takes place in our hearts. Now, on the one hand, that means that keeping the law, fulfilling the law, is easier. It's no longer about meticulous rule-keeping. It's no longer about trying to remember all 613 commandments in the Old Testament. It's no longer about trying to earn God's favour, because Jesus has done that for us. It's no longer about that one particular site in Jerusalem. It's about one particular person instead, the Lord Jesus. So in one sense, it's easier. But on the other, on the other hand, it's much harder. Because it involves the heart. Let me put it this way. Pharisees can't fulfil the law. What I mean by this is that if by this reckoning, you know, by this reckoning, if we think about it this way, if I honour my parents, don't steal from anyone, don't murder anyone, don't lie, don't cheat, but have not love, then we've got nothing. If we keep all those commandments, if we do all that ticking off, but we don't love others as we do it, then we're no better than when we started. If love is not the motivation, it doesn't matter how well you've kept some rules, it's not real holiness, it's not real godliness, it's not real obedience. So someone might look very, very godly, but if they're motivated by pride or by position, if they're motivated by thinking that this is getting them into God's good books, then they're not fulfilling the law. So think about it. Why do you not steal your neighbour's car? Is it because you don't know how to steal a car? That's probably for lots of us, isn't it? Is it because you fear you might get caught? Is it because you were brought up not to do that kind of thing? Is it because you can afford to buy one anyway, so you don't need to steal your neighbour's car? Or is it because you love your neighbour? You don't want to deprive him, you don't want to hurt him. 
why don't you seduce your neighbour's attractive spouse? Is it because you don't think they'd say yes? Would it be different if you thought that they would? Is it because you fear your neighbour finding out if you did? Is it because you fear your spouse finding out if you did? Or is it because you love your neighbour and you wouldn't want to hurt him or her? So often what appears to be holiness is actually cowardice. We don't do something because we're scared rather than because we love the person. We don't do something because we fear we'll get caught or we're scared of the bad consequences rather than actual genuine love for that person. And if you think about it then, our motive is actually self-preservation. It's preserving ourselves rather than loving the other person. That's not love, that's selfishness, isn't it? And yet it can look like holiness. It can look like godliness. But love, on the other hand, looks out for the other. It helps their neighbour. It does no harm. That's what real holiness looks like. So it's not some judgmental nitpicker obsessed with rules, looking down at their neighbour for breaking them. It's not some spineless coward who only follows the rules because they're scared they might get caught for breaking them. Yet how many in the past have viewed those ones as the holy ones? How many churches have been filled with those people who think that's what godliness is all about? Stuart Olliott writes in his excellent commentary on Romans, There's nothing sensational or mystic about a holy person, nor is he weak or spineless. He is wholesome, strong and pure. It is not a sign of godliness to be avoided by your neighbours, who consider you to be weird or odd. It's more a sign of godliness to be the most trusted neighbour of all. Godliness has to do with loving others, about loving our neighbours. So we should be seeking the good of our neighbour. We should be loving them, says Paul. That's our daily debt. That's our daily duty. Not spineless love, but real love. Love that speaks. Love that helps. Love that points them to Jesus. We're to love one another, and in so doing, says Paul, we fulfil the law. So that's the first bit. That's what we're to do, says Paul. That's how we fulfil the law. We're to love one another. And secondly, just two points this morning. Secondly, live as light because the dawn is coming. This is the why. Why do we live like this? Let me read to you 11 to 14 again. Beside this, you know the time that the hour has come for you to wake from sleep. For salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. The night is far gone, the day is at hand. So then let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armour of light. Let us walk properly as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarrelling and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. Paul here in this little section starts to bring this whole section from the beginning of uh, chapter 12 to a close. There's still a few more things to say. He's going to deal with that in chapter 14, and we're going to look at that uh, probably later on in the year. But he started with a why in chapter 12. Right back at the beginning, chapter 12, verse 1, he tells us that we're to offer our bodies as living sacrifices, 
because of God's mercy, in view of God's mercy. So it's not about earning his favour. It's not about getting into his good books. We live like this because Jesus has put us into his good books. He has shown us mercy, he has shown us kindness by sending Jesus the first time to be a sacrifice for all who believe. That's the first reason why we're to do all these things, and we've already seen it. But the second reason has not to do with his first coming, but his second coming. His return at the end of history, to finally rescue his people and bring about an end to evil and darkness and the old age. So Jesus is coming back, says Paul, and that is a reason to live properly for him. The night is almost over, the day is at hand. So we should no longer live in the darkness of that old age, but in the brightness of the new. Even though the darkness is still here, we're to live as children of the day, of the light. Jesus, if you like, was that bright morning star that heralded the coming of the new age, the new day. And now we're waiting for the dawn. And that's the picture that Paul paints here, someone waiting for the dawn. At dawn, the king will come. At dawn, salvation will finally be accomplished. The redemption of the universe. The revealing of the sons of God. The dawn is almost here, says Paul. You know what time it is. You know it's coming. It's closer now than when you first believed. And that's true, isn't it, for us? We're closer now to Jesus returning than when we first put our faith in Jesus. The night is almost over. The new day is about to dawn. So Paul says, get ready for the day. Cast off the works of darkness and put on the armour of light. Walk properly as in the daytime. That's what he wants us to do. So what does that mean in practice? Well, he tells us to put away our night clothes and put on the armour for the day. I'm reminded of the scene in Pilgrim's Progress, if you've ever read that book, or there's now a really good animated film you can watch uh, of that. There's a scene in Pilgrim's Progress where Christian and Faithful walk into Vanity Fair, which is a town for parties and shopping and games and like a big carnival. And they come dressed in armour. And everyone starts to point at them and laugh at them for coming in dressed in their armour. But friends, that's a picture of us. That's what we are to do, if you like. We're to be dressed in our armour, even in the midst of what's going on in the world. In the world of darkness, but dressed in armour of light. So what is this armour of light that Paul is talking about? Well, you might expect him to go full Ephesians 6. You know what I mean? Armour of God's belt of truth, blessed plate of righteousness, helmet of salvation. But he doesn't. Actually, in verse 14, he's sort of equivalent. He says, put on the Lord Jesus Christ. How do you put on a person, though? I can get putting on armour. How do you put on a person? Well, in Galatians 3, Paul uses a similar phrase. He talks about us having put on Christ. So Galatians 3, again on the back of your notice sheet. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you were baptised into Christ, have put on Christ. You are sons, he says, because Jesus is the son, and you have put on Jesus. Clothed yourself with him when you became a believer. So it's like we're counted in him. 
But here in Romans, it's a command. A command to believers. We're told to put him on. But how can you put him on if you're already wearing him, if you like? You can't put on a coat you're already wearing, can you? And it's not just here. The same tension exists in Ephesians and Colossians. In Colossians 3, we're told that we have put on our new selves, being renewed in the image of God. And yet in Ephesians 4, we're told to put on the new selves. But how can we put on something that's already there? Well, the answer is that in the Christian life, there's a now and a not yetness to it, isn't there? We see it in our passage. We are of the day, but it's still night. But we're meant to live as though it's the day, but the day has not yet arrived. What it means is that daily we need to apply what is true to our lives, what is already true. We are clothed in Christ, so we must daily clothe ourselves in Christ. We are children of God in Christ, so we should live as children of God. Okay, so that's being clothed in Christ. But it also says, be clothed in the armour of light. Now, armour sounds very different to a person, doesn't it? Seems a very different idea. How does that work? Well, the armour of light that he's referring to is Christ's armour. It's the Messiah's armour. You'll see uh, uh, on the back of your notice sheet, Isaiah 59. This is what was told of the coming Messiah. The Lord saw it, and it displeased him that there was no justice. He saw that there was no man, and wondered that there was no one to intercede. Then his own arm brought him salvation, and his righteousness upheld him. He put on righteousness as a breastplate, and a helmet of salvation on his head. He put on garments of vengeance for clothing, and he wrapped himself in zeal as a cloak. Isaiah said, actually, the Messiah would be dressed in this armour. This is God putting on the armour for himself. We are to dress ourselves in Christ's clothing. We are to be like him, to be conformed to his likeness, to be lights in a dark world, like he is the light of the world, to be bright shining lights in the cosmos, to be like Jesus in the world. To put on this armour of light then is to put on Christ's likeness, to clothe ourselves in Christ. And as we go about life, we're to put on Christ in our thoughts, in our actions, in our words. According to Paul, like we said, we're already in Christ. We're safe, we're saved by him by faith. The Spirit supernaturally puts us in Christ by faith. So that when God looks at us, he sees Christ, righteous, pure and holy. And now with the Spirit's help, we apply that to our lives. We're to be who we are in Christ. Or again, as one helpful commentary puts it, we are to be who we will be in Christ. We're to bring the end into now. Bring the age of light into a world of darkness by putting on Christ in our daily lives. That's what is proper, isn't it, for those who belong to the daytime. But that image of armour does give us a slightly different slant, doesn't it? The clothes that we are to put on are not just any day wear, are they? This is armour, protective vests, helmets. The world can be a dangerous place, can't it, when you stick out like a sore thumb, or a city on a hill, or a light in the darkness. Think about what happened to Jesus 
as he stood out in the world. In World War II, they had to have blackout every night, didn't they? Because a single light bulb could make you a target. Well, he was told we have bright, shining armour, that we're lights in the world. And while that brings light to the world, it makes us a target, doesn't it? The world, the flesh, and the devil will attack. And we need to be prepared. But that very light that God has given us is armour, is protection. So we need to put it on. We need to be like Christ. When the world attacks, we need to respond as Christ would, as Christ did. And that's all that Paul has been telling us in this section of Romans. Bless those who persecute you. Repay no one evil for evil. Don't take revenge. If your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. Where possible, submit to earthly authorities. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. That is the armour of light. That is how we are like Christ in the world. That's what Christ did, and that is what we are to do. So we're to put on the armour of light. But it's more than that. We're not just to put on the armour of light, but it says also to to take off our old attire, to put away the deeds of darkness, the works of darkness, the desires of the flesh. We're to make no provision for them. We're to get rid of them. You see, pyjamas might have been suitable attire for the day during lockdown. Right? I know we all did it. Pyjamas. But you don't see people walking around town, do you, in their pyjamas? I say that this morning, actually. I saw someone walking to the shop in their pyjamas. But... In normal circumstances, I don't want to say normal people, but in normal circumstances, you don't wear night clothes during the day. Equally, you don't get dressed up for a night out on the town during the day. You don't go dressed up like that, do you? Night clothes belong to the night. So we're to chuck those clothes out, says Jesus, says Paul. The night is almost over. We don't need them anymore. We don't want them anymore. What's those clothes that Paul is talking about? He spells out in verse 13. Orgies, drunkenness, sexual immorality, sensuality, quarrelling, jealousy. Now I don't know about you, but I I, I don't know if I heard a laugh when that was read out earlier. Because it does seem quite extreme, doesn't it? You sort of think, he's writing to Christians here, this seems pretty obvious, doesn't it? Not many of us, I think, would imagine that we indulge in these kind of things. So it just seems a bit strange to have them there. But our culture certainly finds ways of saying things, don't don't we? We tend to find a sort of euphemism for saying something that we don't want to really say. So we might say, rather than, you know, um, that they are uh, involved in orgies, we might say that they're over-friendly with people. It's the same thing, isn't it, just further down the spectrum. Or, you know, they, they're not getting drunk, but they might have a bit too much to drink occasionally. Or, you know, with those other ones, they might be a bit sex-obsessed rather than sexually immoral. They might have a dirty mind. They might be a bit of a hothead rather than being a uh, person who quarrels. They might be a bit overly possessive rather than jealous. I've checked out the Greek words. Those things all work as translations of those things. They're not quite the normal words that Paul uses that we think are quite extreme. And we do have tendencies those ways, don't we? As we start to list it off like that. We might not think that we're right at the end of the spectrum, but we're often along it somewhere. 
We see those things seeping into our lives. We feel those old ways that we used to do things trying to get into our lives again, don't we? Get rid of them, says Paul. Get rid of them. If they're your spiritual night clothes, have a spiritual clear out. Get a metaphorical black bin bag, get all your clothes in there and then sling it on a skip. And leave it there, says Paul. Make no provision for it either, in verse 14. That's a step further, isn't it? It's not just don't do these things, make no provision for these things. If you're tempted to be over-friendly with a colleague or someone else's spouse, maybe don't meet up with them for coffee alone. That might not be the most helpful thing. If you're tempted to drink too much, maybe don't order so much wine or beer or gin on the next shopping order. If you're tempted towards a bit of sex on the internet, then maybe don't stay up late on the computer or on your, or on your device at night. Make no provision, says Paul. Take away the fuel from the fire. Cancel the credit card that you use to buy more night clothes, if you like. Don't do things that will make it harder for you to obey. And that might seem hard, it might seem harsh, but it's not long, says Paul. We're almost there. We've almost made it. We're almost at the day. It won't be long until Jesus comes back or he takes you to be with himself. You're closer now to that perfection that we long for, to the end of sin and temptation, to the end of the battle when we have to wear armour. You're closer to that now than when you first became a Christian. And remember how keen and exciting you were then. You're almost home. So keep going, says Paul. Keep getting up in the morning and putting your armour on. Keep enduring the jeers along with Christian and faithful as you go about day to day in Vanity Fair otherwise known as the world at large. I was going to say Otley, but we'll just go with the world at large. Keep to the instructions, says Paul. Love one another, because it fulfills the law. Live as light, because the dawn is coming. And that will be the best thing that ever happens to you, when the dawn arrives. Eternity with God in the home that he's prepared for us. No sin, no armour, no hate, no traffic jams from Ikea. Hopefully, no flat pack furniture. I can't guarantee that last one. But live for the light, he says. Love one another and wait for the dawn. Let's do that together. Let's pray that God would give us the strength day to day. Father God, we thank you for all that we've been learning in Romans. Father, help us now with your spirit's help to put it into practice. Father, help us not to be those who just look into the mirror of your word and then walk away and forget that, Father God, help us to love one another from the heart day by day. Help us to live for you, knowing that the end is near and the day is almost here. So help us to cast off those deeds of darkness. Help us to make no provision for the flesh. And Father, keep us going to the end. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.